Welcome back to the channel. Normally when I'm with you, I provide you with original content from me. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. About mid-September, I appeared as a guest on the Boundless Body radio show hosted by Casey Ruff, who's a spectacular human being. So today I want to share with you the video version of that interview that Casey and I did together. And I'm pretty sure if you haven't heard me talk about these topics before, you're going to have your mind blown, and I'll touch base with you when we get to the end. Enjoy. The Dr. Reality Vodcast with Dave Champion. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to reintroduce to you now. Dave Champion is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out his first appearance on our podcast on episode 121 of Balanced Body Radio. Dave Champion is a former Army Ranger with a law enforcement background. In the private sector, Dave is a businessman turned journalist, having hosted his own radio and television shows for nearly two decades. In addition to being a physiologist with, doctoral, with a doctoral degree in political philosophy, Champion has an extensive background in legal studies. Dave has written the groundbreaking and widely acclaimed Income Tax, Shattering the Myths. His second book, Body Science, The New 21st Century Understanding of How Your Physiology Really Works, Leave the Myths and Lies Behind, Get Healthier Than You or Your Doctor Ever Imagined, and Avoid Chronic Disease, is the result of his research into the core principles of human physiology, leading to a visionary understanding of how every person on the planet can get healthy, stay healthy, and reduce their odds of chronic disease to virtually zero. It is one of my favorite books on the subject and will be the topic of our discussion today. Dave Champion, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you back to Balanced Body Radio. Thanks, Casey. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, by the way, the, of all that stuff you just read, the most meaningful to me was when you said it's one of your favorite books on the subject. Thank you. I mean it. Uh, you, you came out of nowhere. I didn't know you existed. I don't know how you found me, but you offered to send me a book. And I was like, yeah, sure. This is great. And just a few pages in, I was already hooked. And you, I, I told you this a little <laughs> bit offline. You do such a good job of, of telling the story in a way that's understandable. This can get really complex um, and lots of different moving parts and pieces and everything. But you really cut to the chase and your arguments are fantastic. I love that you almost take that kind of journalistic um, approach that Gary Taubes takes. When he does yes. his books, it, it's like a lawyer. I can see your lawyer background coming through, but it's understandable, which I love. Okay, so to use my name and Gary Taubes in the same sentence, thank you. I'm honored. I'm <laughs> very flattered because I, can, I consider Gary just amazing. He is absolutely amazing. I just finished some of his books, The Case Against Sugar, and also Why We Get Fat for like the second or third time recently. And it's, it really is incredible. You know, even though those books have been out for quite a while to listen again, you, you take something new from it every time. And just finishing your book this week again, I took something new from it and learned more things that, that um, you know, I, I forgotten about. And so I really appreciate what you've done here. Um, and so hopefully we can deep dive into this content today and, and hear the story of, of how this all came about. Let's do it. Awesome. That sounds great. The other thing I want to do is since I know what diet you are on and I know how long you've been on that diet, you even post pictures of the things that you eat. I'm personally a little bit concerned. And so we're going to be asking you some very specific questions about health conditions that surely, surely you must be dealing with after three and a half years on carnivore. We'll, we'll save that for the end. Um, okay. but first, I <laughs> first I want to talk about your fantastic book. Before we do, tell us a little bit about the story of how you got uh, into this story as something that caught your attention. Right, so I, I, this, I don't know how many years going back this is, but I, I had never heard 
of this thing called keto. And I, I was at the gym one day and I looked over and I saw what I thought was a gentleman that I knew um, who probably at one point been pushing about 300 pounds. I'm sorry, not, not pushing weights. His, his own body weight was pushing 300 pounds. And I looked at this guy and, and I said, judge, judge him from looking at him from the back, it, it looks like Sean. I said, but that can't be Sean because Sean's like another 120 pounds heavier. And so I, as I'm looking over and having this discussion in my head, he turns around. I'm like, oh my God, that is Sean. So I march over to him and I compliment him on how great he looks. And I said, well, how did you do this? And he says, oh, it's keto. What's that? So he starts explaining to me that he's eating 80% fat and that that's how he's lost all this weight. And of course, at that time, um, I, I guess I was still to some extent, as you probably know, I've written my whole life about false establishment narratives. That's sort of my thing. Um, nevertheless, I think there was still a part of me that was stuck in the old parad the old nutritional paradigm, the, the falsehoods that have been uh, propagated by the establishment for the last 60 years. So he tells me he's eating 80% fat, and that's how he dropped all that weight. And I'm like, yeah, sure. So, um, but I couldn't deny what I'd seen with my own eyes. That was the conundrum for me. I, I, I didn't buy into it, but I saw the results, right? So I came home and, and I told Jan, I said, man, I saw Sean and this would happen. I, I don't know what this thing is, but if it's valid, if it's true, I want to know. And that moment um, was the, the genesis of what eventually became body science. The, the initial step was um, I spent three weeks every single night tearing up the research on um, ketosis, not so much the keto diet, but, but what ketosis does. Uh, physiologically. And when I was done with the, the third week, I marched into Jen's office here at the house and I said, it's safe. It's healthy. I want to do it. And she said, okay, let's do it. And I said, oh, you're going to do it with me? She says, yeah. So here we, here we are, you know, more than four and a half years later, um, we've been in uh, living in ketosis, that's a phrase that I'm, I'm very keen on, in quotes, living in ketosis, which is entirely different than using the keto diet or the carnivore diet or the paleo diet or what have you um, for the, the purpose of losing weight. Living in ketosis to me is where it's at. It's something entirely different from what a lot of people are doing, which is just a diet. Okay? Yeah. So we've been living in ketosis for more than four and a half years now. Wow. And I know there's something that you say about your book, which I really appreciate. This is not a diet book. And so I'm so glad you made that distinction. What did you want to focus on when you told this story? And why is this not a diet book? All right, let me go back and, and talk about what I like to do when I write. You're probably aware, I don't know, you may not have read it, but you're probably aware that I'm the author of Income Tax Shadow Myths. That's right. And when I set out to write that, my goal was so that when the person closes the final page, they have absolutely no doubt what the truth is concerning the income tax. Okay? I didn't want anyone to close the book and say, oh man, there was so many holes in that, so much missing. I, I really don't, I'm really not committed. I, I, I'm not thoroughly convicted by this. Okay? Um, I think if you're going to tell a truth that is viewed uh, even if it's not tr actually controversial, but if it's viewed by the masses as controversial, you better button down everything. That, that's my philosophy. And so 
one of the things that I wanted to do in body science was exactly that. When somebody closed the final page on body science, I wanted them to say, I get it fully, A to Z, front to back, I totally get it. And you're aware, <laughs> our society for so long has been into diets, right? Uh, every kind of diet under the sun. And most people, they get on it as a transitory attempt to lose weight. Sometimes they do, but because it's the diet mentality, they rarely keep the weight off. And what I wanted to do was not talk about the keto diet. What I, I didn't want to talk about the carnivore diet or any of these things. What I wanted to do was explain to people how their human physiology actually works rather than the misinformation and disinformation they've been fed by the establishment for the last 50 or 60 years. I do the same thing in income tax shattering the myths. I want them to completely understand that the establishment narrative is false. Um, in this case, I'm, we're dealing with human physiology. And I don't know about you, Casey, but I, I'm, I don't like the word offended, especially in 2022, because so many people are so <laughs> offended about everything, right? Um, but, but it offends my sense of, of what is right and just, that the establishment has been misleading people intentionally for the sake of trillion-dollar industries, has been misleading people, especially here in the United States and to a lesser extent in the Western society period, has been misleading us about human physiology. I mean, it's like, this is science, okay? How dare you misrepresent to, you know, billions and billions of people when we add, when we add it all up, all the people that are, that are reading this, the information that's going, how dare you uh, mislead billions of people for no better reason then the industry can make trillions of dollars off the lies you're telling. Yeah. I just, when I sat down to read body science, I, I suppose the underlying thought was someone's got to tell the other side. Someone's got to tell the truth. And someone's got to do it in a way that when they close the final page from that day forward, everything they see on television and magazines online and so forth, everything they see that talks about a diet or what, science just discovered about this or that in the human body, uh, especially if it involves nutritional physiology, they'll never be fooled again because they actually know how the body really operates. And I thought that was critical for anybody who buys my book, that they can never be fooled again. And then they have the option to do about that what they want to do. Yeah, no, I love that. And on that note, I was recently listening to an interview that one of my friends did where he was talking to a paleoanthropologist who was talking about the evidence that we came from plant-based people. We, As humans, we have a plant-based narrative. And I'm, I'm listening to his reasons why, and he's talking primarily about dentition and teeth. And, and it's I hear that. And now I've got 10 other questions. And I, that, that doesn't like wrap things up or check off the boxes. When I hear Mickey Bendor, Dr. Mickey Bendor talk about how we evolved, it's like, okay, this is why our shoulders are like this. This is why our stomach is this acidic. This is why we have long, small intestines. We gave up the ability to digest fiber with a shorter colon. It's like his research checks so many boxes, wraps everything up perfectly. It's also like our, 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 you know, our mutual friend, Dave Feldman. Dave Feldman's latest study 
checks box after box after box and wraps everything up in a way that's like, yeah, I understand. That makes a lot of sense. That answers so many questions versus, again, listening to this clown talk about how we evolved from plant-based. It's like, no, now I've got other questions. So I really appreciate that you have that particular style and wanted to tell that particular story. Another thing that I really like when I find something um, that I, I, I believe in is it, it stands the test of time. So every year, there's not more doubts or more paradoxes or more things that are introduced. It's like it, it remains tested, more tested by more people and is more true than it was before. So on that note, I told you I was going to ask you this question. Is there anything you would go back to body science and change now that it's been out for a few years? Interesting you say that because from time to time, I will pick up one of my books and I'll start reading and I'll read through a dozen or 20 pages um, just because I think as an author, that's a good thing to do, go, be go back and read what we've written before. So I, I, I've never read Income Tax Shattering the Myths again, front to back, or Body Science again, front to back. But, but I do read um, portions of it from time to time. I just think that's good authorship. It allows me to do my, my best job moving forward, I believe. Um, I think I would change nothing materially. Let me be clear about that. None That's of the physiology, none of, none of the science. Yeah. Um, I, we all grow and change. Well, hopefully we grow and change, right? And we improve ourselves all the time. So when I read through body science, which was written three years ago, um, there are things I would phrase differently. Um, I think you know me well enough to know I'm a pretty straightforward guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are a few things that I said <laughs> very strongly in body <laughs> science uh, that perhaps maybe I'd be a wee bit less direct and a wee bit more tactful. Uh, but as far as the science, as far as the, the, the what I want people to take away from the book about human physiology, I, no, I wouldn't change a thing because it's all science and nothing, nothing has changed about the science. Let me, let me say that. Um, I know we've just lived through two years of science seeming to change every couple of months, but it, it really doesn't work that way. Uh, so nothing has changed about the science. And given that these are core mechanisms of the body, that this is how the body operates. This is how the body functions. This is this is how we take stuff we put in here and it fuels our cells. I mean, it doesn't get more more much more fundamental than that. So I would be shocked if anything about human physiology in body science uh, would ever need to be updated because it, all the information is extremely fundamental and the idea that something that at the core like that, that that's fundamental is misunderstood. Uh, and by the way, it's not misunderstood. I talk about misinformation and disinformation by the government, by large institutions. That's intentional. So they know everything that's in body science. It's, it's, that's why I said sometimes things might appear on their surface controversial, but they're really not. Um, all of the government agencies and all of the research institutions and, and all of the big industry, their, their scientific labs, which are the best money can buy. They all know everything that's in body science and they all know it's true. So it's, it's not controversial in that sense. They just don't want the American people to know about it. Yeah, that's right. No, recently I just asked um, Amy Berger the same question. She's the author of the Alzheimer's antidote. And about a month ago, all of this, you know, scammy, 
information came out about how we've been, you know, fraudulent information about amyloid plaques and how billions <laughs> of dollars have been shuttled the wrong way for so many years. And I asked her the same thing. Like, would you go back and change anything in your book now that this has come out? She was like, I th- this, I knew this was going to happen. Like this was clearly going to happen because she got it right from the beginning. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that's the way you responded and that the science, there's not a 2021 study that came out that proved everything that you did is absolutely not true. The more and more we look at these things, the more it's showing that everything you wrote about is true. You talk about these two systems. You, you refer to them as two hemispheres. Um, and we can jump in on whichever one you like. I think I would love to dive into the lymphatic uh, lipid system and ketosis, which you've already mentioned. And maybe we could talk about that system first so that we can then contrast it to the hepatic lipid system and a word that you have coined called glucosis, which I absolutely love. Can we talk about how this system works in the body and, you know, what, what life is like internally for you always living in ketosis? Sure. Uh, First of all, let me give a very brief description of what the lymphatic system is, what lymphatic lipid system is, starting with the fact that it is not an accepted medical term. I had to create that. Um, again, we, we, I, I talk about there are certain things that, that just offend my sense of, of, of what it should be right. And one of them is that when you have something that goes from point A, from point A to point Z, and it's clearly a system, why hasn't the medical community ever given that system a name? Well, that's what I found out when, when I had to find a name for what is now referred to as the lymphatic lipid system. Now, so I, I say that so that if your audience tries to Google lymphatic lipid system and they come up empty, other than perhaps getting a, a link to body science, um, they, they'll, they won't wonder why that is. Uh, but it is nevertheless a system, and readers have, have made that observation. They've said, by defining the systems of the lymphatic lipid system and the hepatic lipid system was a game changer. They've literally, people have literally written me and said, uh, the ability to quantify those as a system is a game changer. Yeah. All right. So the lymphatic lipid system describes what happens from the moment you put something that is dietary fat in your mouth until the, it is oxidized within the cells for energy. And there's a whole process that goes, again, from the moment you put something that's dietary fat in your mouth until the cells burn it for, for energy. And I'm not, I'm not going to let people read body science if they want to understand the entire thing. But I will say this, fat remains fat at all times. It's merely emulsified in the intestines. Then it's, it's um, packaged up in something called a cholemicron, which is, has you know, a protein structure that allows it, this is the important part, allows the, cholemi- the, the, the structure which contains the fatty acids, the emulsified dietary fat, is then once it's within this shell, which collectively is known as a cholemicron, then it's able to transit the intestine wall into the body. Um, if your audience isn't aware, medicine does not consider the intestines an internal part of the body. Um, if, if there's a hole at the top and a hole at the bottom and you can drop something in the top and it comes out the bottom, it's not considered internal. It is a pathway through the body, but it is not, medically speaking, it's not considered internal to the body. So. What happens is once the cholemicrons transit the intestinal wall, they they become inside the body and then they get taken up by lymph fluid, the lymphatic system, hence the name, the uh, lymphatic lipid system. And then they travel in the lymph fluid up the the 
just above the heart and they come out in the thoracic duct and it enters the vascular system. And these chalimicrons then at that point become like little delivery vans and uh, they, they're, they're riding along in the blood and I'm not going to go through the whole, you know, APOE and APOC and APO48 and all that stuff. Um, but they, they offload their cargo, which is the fatty acids. Um, they offload the, the fatty acids into the hundred trillion cells of your body. Uh, when they're done with that, the cargo door locks again by exchanging an enzyme and, uh, or excuse me, a lipoprotein. And then <clears throat> the color micron goes to the blood system. It enters the liver where it is recognized by uh, what lipoproteins are present, what lipoproteins are not, as something that needs to be recycled or removed from the body. And it's broken down and the whole process begins again the next time you eat some form of dietary fat. That, that is essentially the short version of the lymphatic lipid system. Did I leave anything out, Casey? You no, I don't. I, I don't think so, but I do want to reiterate a point that you mentioned earlier. We talked about this last time. I think this is so critical. The fat that is delivered by the chylomicron is burned, period. It's not stored in long-term storage the way most people think when they eat a ton of fat, that they're just going to gain a bunch of fat. Is that correct? Yes. There's. Uh, let me go a step further. There is no mechanism in the body. Zero. It doesn't exist to take fatty acids, triglycerides, that are within the shell called the cholemicron, and do anything other than oxidize them for energy in the mitochondria of the 100 trillion cells of your body. There is no other mechanism. They, they, as an example, the cholemicrons, biochemically speaking, they cannot return to the liver until they've offloaded their cargo. And there's only one place and one place only they can offload their cargo. That is into the 100 trillion cells of your body where it is oxidized. There is no storage mechanism for the process of fatty acids being delivered as part of the lymphatic lipid system. There is no storage mechanism. Wow. Wow. So I can eat more fat, but I would just have more fat energy being delivered. Thus, I might have more energy and might actually feel better. There's probably, I'm not aware of anyone who's done the test of I'm, I'm going to eat an absolute, absolutely obsessive amount of fat, and then I'm going to have various blood tests run. <clears throat> but I imagine what you would see with a diet that has an insane, unhealthy amount of dietary fat would be the triglycerides would simply be high, that, which is definitely a negative thing. You don't want high triglycerides, but I, I, that would probably be, if I could phrase it this way, the worst of it. Yeah, gotcha. And, and one of the paradoxes in Dave Feldman's study, when people do reduce their carbohydrates, is we do see that triglycerides reduce, which is really counterintuitive. You'd think they would go up, and maybe they do in a very transitory period, but they end up dropping off because we're using all of that energy. I think it's super interesting. Where do ketones fit into all of this? Okay. So the existence of ketones and the use of ketones by the human body is the, the core of the genesis uh, the, the etymology of the word ketosis. Okay. Um, and which was first coined someplace around 1920. It's in body science. Right, right in that year, 1920 was the first time somebody coined that phrase. Um, what exactly 
just hang on. What, what exactly did you want me to speak to? I'm trying That's to make sure a, that I, there's so much, there's so much information. I, I know. Get the right information. I know. No, I really appreciate it. Just how, when, when, when the cells are receiving all of this fat and they're oxidizing this fat as energy, that's when we see ketones being produced. Is that correct? And if so, what, what is our body using those for? What do they do? Okay. When the body shifts into ketosis, the largest component that's being burned uh, for energy within the hundred trillion cells of the body is fatty acids, not ketones. However, when a body is in ketosis, ketones are absolutely essential because the brain, the fatty acids cannot move through the blood-brain barrier. Ketones can. Okay? So what happens is the fatty acids arrive in the liver. The liver converts them, a percentage of them, into various ketones or collectively known as ketone bodies. Uh, the public just calls them ketones. And then those ketones, much like the clay microns, they ride in the blood, but they are able to permeate the blood brain bar- the blood brain barrier. Um, and yeah, yeah, that's a tongue twister. And so all of the cells of your brain use ketones, not fatty acids. Now, the all cells other than the brains, they burn, depending on whose estimates you believe are most accurate, um, either 90% fatty acids and 10% ketones or 85% fatty acids and 15% ketones. That's our, our normal everyday cells throughout our body. But the brain burns exclusively ketones for energy. Yeah. And, and we've learned over time that the brain, places like the brain, the heart, they much prefer running on the ketones than they do running on glucose. Is that correct? Absolutely. Uh, The way I I often characterize it is that glucose, which is what the brain runs on when a person is in glucosis, uh, it's like diesel fuel. It's smelly and it's greasy, it's oily, and it's not not as refined as some other types of fuel. Ketones are uh, dragster fuel. Got it. In comparison to to how how it is perceived by, by the brain cells. Got it. Okay. And, and that, that manifests itself in the fact that virtually everybody who chooses to live in ketosis, usually within like two or three weeks after making the shift, they report an astounding phenomenon of additional brain clarity. Suddenly, everything makes more sense. Things that didn't make sense do make sense. Suddenly, they they can focus more uh, intently on things like, for instance, when they're studying. And that's because that's the reaction of the brain when it clears out all of the garbage from having to burn glucose and begins now burning pristine ketones. That's why people talk about dramatic brain clarity increase. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. This reminds me of a recent podcast that you did. Uh, Maybe this is a good time to talk about this. I thought this was fantastic. And anecdotally, I see this all the time when people start eating in a way that puts them into ketosis. You you write about things that make people angry sometimes. <laughs> you talk about politics and finances, and, and there can be a lot of passion and emotion behind these things. But you talk about the way that you used to do things versus the way you do things now. And there's a vast difference. And I find that so fascinating. And again, anecdotally, I see it all the time. Can you comment on that? Sure. Um, what Casey is referring to is I, 
what sort of put me on the social media map at one time was I used to do these things called angry truck rants. And we, we know today a lot of people do shoot videos in their vehicles. But when I first started doing that, it was incredibly rare. And uh, something would just inflame me, uh, some political event or some act of mass violence, something like that. And I would sit in my truck and I would have the cell phone up on the dashboard and I would, I would get into the subject and I'd start talking and I'd get lit and I'd get more emotional. And by the end, I'd be screaming and yelling. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> as I said in the video you're referencing, it was, it was pretty cathartic um, to get that out like that because, of course, we're not allowed to be angry in, in our current society. So being able to sit there and vent that um, was pretty cathartic. But. And it's like one of them was seen by 1.7 million people on Facebook, and it was actually wow. featured on the on the Drudge Report. That's how popular those truck rants were back in the day. Wow. So people still pine away for those. I guess comments on social media all the time. Well, this would be a great subject for a truck rant. Um, <laughs> but that level of emotional response. Since I've gone, since I've been living in ketosis, that's just not there anymore. Uh, I, I still have the same exact intellectual understanding of these type of, of events when I see them. I still hold the same viewpoint. <clears throat> I still feel the same angst um, to an extent when I see innocent people being harmed and things like that. Uh, when I see politicians trying to uh, under the guise of helping, they're actually harming. Uh, these things still make me very unhappy. But that sense of anger that I vented in those truck rants, um, it's just not there anymore. If I were to do a truck rant today, I mean, never say never, right? But if I were to do a truck rant today, I my supposition as I sit here is that that kind of anger, I, I would have to contrive it because I just yeah. don't. I just don't feel it like I did then. And the only difference between then and now is I was in glucosis and now I'm in ketosis. And to take it a step further, I would say that, and, and I know that this may be difficult for people to grasp if they haven't read body science, that my body was unhealthy. And I think that has an emotional impact. And now living in ketosis, my body's healthy and happy. It's being fed the way it's being genetically coded to be fed. So I think it all that also has an effect on the emotional component. And I just, I still want to affect change. And I, I still want innocent people not to be harmed. And I still want politicians to shut the fuck up when they're saying things that, that are, are disingenuous and harmful. Uh, but I just, I can't imagine doing an angry truck rant anymore. Yeah. You know, much, much to the disappointment of many people who've been following me for that's years. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And I only know the Dave from 2021 who was kind enough to send me his book. I, I only know that one. And you and I have been able to talk on our interviews and offline. And you're a super friendly guy. I consider you one of my friends. You're very balanced and we get to talk about different opinions. And and, and I, I see that in you and I see that in other people when, when they switch over. So I, I, I really appreciate you commenting on that. Okay, so so what what are the downsides? What is there is there something that blows up or goes bad? Does you know the extra fat mean more cholesterol in the arteries, and that's going to clog it up? If we're running this system, what are there any downsides? Is something else going to go wrong? Want to be uh, 
cautious how I how I respond to this. <clears throat> I say in body science that when your body is functioning in ketosis, in other words, the way it's genetically coded to function, your body will never produce, barring some sort of genetic abnormality. Okay? A, a person who is genetically healthy and they're living in ketosis, their body will never produce any substance in any quantity that is unhealthy or harmful. Uh, I think that's a very, very important premise for people to understand. When in glucose, body will do all sorts of crazy stuff that's unhealthy, trying to compensate. Okay? Um, but in ketosis, it doesn't do that. There's no need for that. So everything, every substance that your body creates when you're in ketosis is going to be in the exact correct amount that your body needs and wants to be healthy. I, say, I bring that up because you mentioned cholesterol. And of course, I, I think the truth, even in kind of mainstream circles, I think the truth is starting to be understood that the whole uh, cholesterol narrative was nonsense from the start. Uh, it was never, it was never a cholesterol that was really the issue. Uh, the issue is primarily triglycerides. And the only time that cholesterol comes into play in, in the sense of being unhealthful is if you have a condition where your triglycerides are high, where you have something like metabolic syndrome, okay? then high LDL can be a problem. But it's not the LDL. If your triglycerides are low and your LDL is high, that there is no science. I think this is really important for your viewers to understand. There is no science anywhere. All the, stuff, all the research, billions of dollars in research on cholesterol. There is not one bit of science that says if your triglycerides are low and healthy, that high LDL is disadvantageous or unhealthy in any way. Now, I'll share my personal numbers with you if you'd like. I haven't had them done in a handful of months, but the last time I had them done, um, I think my triglycerides were 70. My um, HDL, which is oftentimes referred to as good cholesterol. There's no good cholesterol. There's no bad cholesterol. Each, each type you. of cholesterol has, has its job function. Um, that's one of the things, I, another thing I like people to understand. These, these things all are created by the body because they serve a function. Thank so, you. My, yeah, my HDL was, I think, 56. And my LDL, 171, which, of course, if I was in glucosis, and if I was sitting with a doctor, a cardiologist who didn't understand ketosis, didn't, hadn't done the latest research, uh, hadn't viewed the latest research on cholesterol, when I told him 171, he'd probably fall out of his chair in shock. You know, there's got to be, yeah, you need some statins right away. Before you leave my office, here's a statin, um, which is absolute nonsense. So, but here's the thing. Yeah, you obviously are familiar with remnant cholesterol. Okay, so... Remnant cholesterol, for, for anyone, including medical doctors, who actually keeps up on the research, uh, it's shocking how many doctors, even cardiologists, don't. But remnant cholesterol is really the, the if, there, if there is a true indicator of potential uh, heart disease, it's going to be found in remnant cholesterol. Remnant cholesterol, anything above 20 is um, almost certainly problematic, and, and you, you want to be looking at what the causes are of that. The, the lower down you get from 20, the healthier you are and the less chance of heart disease, because everybody has a chance of heart disease, right. um, uh, especially, you know, genetically speaking, some people are, are more predisposed. And that's another great thing about ketosis. 
You can take that perhaps genetic predisposition and on the whole discount it once your body's operating in ketosis. Now, um, when your cholesterol is high in ketosis, it means one thing and one thing only. And that is, that is the correct level of LDL cholesterol for your body to be healthy. Yes. So, and I try it. I try and tell people all the time, especially people in the medical community who, who have never looked at these issues. I tell them the, the, the rules and the numbers that apply to glucoses on the whole, overwhelming, have absolutely no application to a body in ketosis. So when we talk about high cholesterol, um, that's always LDL. Um, no, no one's concerned about high HDL until it gets, gets over 60. Then, then perhaps, perhaps it's problematic. Um, anyway, so it's always LDL cholesterol that they talk about is problematic. And as I said before, there's absolutely no evidence absent high triglycerides that high LDL uh, is, is problematic or unhealthy in any way. In ketosis, that's true in spades. Um, there are people who literally have LDL numbers coming in in the five in ketosis, who their LDL is coming in in the 500s. but their remnant cholesterol is like 11, mine's 13, okay? Wow. Um, so they're, yeah, and remnant cholesterol is the, the lower, I, 11 is the lowest I've ever heard of. I'm not saying it's the lowest out there, but it's the lowest that I've ever had somebody say, here, here's my remnant cholesterol numbers is 11. Um, once you get under about 15, you're doing great. And the important thing to keep in mind sort of, as a, I'm going to say a hard and fast rule. If your remnant cholesterol is under 20, most especially under 15, there should be not a care in the world where your LDL comes in. Yeah. Provided your triglycerides are not high. Yeah. Uh, tr high triglycerides are always a problem. There is never a time when high triglycerides does not indicate there's a problem. Yeah. No, totally agree. I love that explanation. And just to kind of wrap this up, you dedicate a whole chapter of your book to this. Since we coined the term ketosis and ketogenesis in like the 1920s, is this system something that evolved with us in just the last hundred years since we, we found out that people could eat ketogenic diets for epilepsy? Or is this maybe something that goes back slightly further than that? A little bit further. Uh <laughs> Okay. Uh, leaving aside the nonsense you were talking about from some gentleman that, that uh, ancient man was uh, plant-based. No, ancient man ate, was, was preferentially uh, a carnivore. Uh, we are fortunate in that our bodies have some mechanisms that allow us to consume things other than animal flesh and, and to digest those and to process that. However, for millions of years, our ancient ancestors, they killed and ate game. Their diet was animal flesh, period. End of statement. Uh, now, what happened was about 12,000 years ago, we entered into what uh, historians call the first agricultural revolution. And that was when the very first farms, and, and they, they were few and far between, uh, they were almost unheard of. But when anthropologists go back and they look at the record, 
we can tell that right around 12,000 years ago was the first time farming in a very small scale uh, began. And it continued for a significant period of time, growing slowly, 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 slowly. And it didn't have a great impact. Yes, the people tended not to be nomadic anymore, and they were they started to do a little bit of, of farming, and that kind of kept them in one place. But on the whole, they still lived off of animal flesh. Then, right around the 1600s, we have the beginning of something called the Second Agricultural Revolution, and that was from the 16 mid 1600s to early 1800s. And that was when, for whatever reason, um, mankind started uh, created a whole bunch of improvements, all at different places of the world within that time frame, in how to engage in farming and agriculture. And with that, suddenly came a dramatic shift in diet. Um, for instance, uh, wheat production in the early 1800s, thanks to the inventions of the Second Agricultural Revolution, uh, literally almost doubled the bushels for a, per acre of grain. Now, if, if one thinks that you know, whole grains are great, then that would have been a fabulous thing. Um, but the point is, whether we're talking about you know, potatoes in Ireland, whether we're talking about grain in the Midwest, um, it was a dramatic shift in how mankind had eaten. And it, it really started gaining traction in about the mid-1600s. And of course, we know we, the, there's this very rapid arc of change. And uh, when I wrote Body Science, which I began writing it in 2018, the average American's diet was 50% carbohydrates. Uh, during the right time of year, um, when fruits and vegetables and things out in nature, say, you know, 80,000 years ago, when ancient man would stumble upon a fruit tree or something that had seeds or nuts that he knew were edible, um, which would have been rare. Well, I talk about why that was rare in body science. Perhaps on that day, his carbohydrate intake might have been two or three percent. Okay. Um, on most days, his carbohydrate intake would have been very close to zero. And so as far as the timeline of history and, and humans, um, in the snap of a finger, we went from 1%, 2%, 3% carbs in a given day to 50%. Yeah. And that is why the United States is the most chronically ill society in all of human history, despite our immense wealth, despite our technology, despite our advances in science. Uh, Americans are the most ill society in human history. And I don't know if you saw the story the other day, more Americans are buying snack foods, by far, dramatic increase in the last uh, 18 months than ever before in history. Wow. Isn't that, isn't that good? Wow. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Anecdotally, I know that's true. When I go on my walks in the morning and pick up trash around my neighborhood, the packages oh. for snacks are everywhere. They're everywhere. It's like, why can't your kid go play on the playground without these 100 calorie snack packs that are full of carbohydrates and sugar? Like, they don't need that. It's insane. So anecdotally, oh, I can yeah. tell you, you're absolutely true. This is now a great time to talk about glucosis, which is another word you had to come up with, and the hepatic lipid system. Can we talk about this other hemisphere, this other way of you know, using energy and, and creating energy in the body? You bet. 
as Casey just shared with you, there are two hemispheres in terms of how to fuel the 100 trillion cells of the human body. Uh, one we've talked about, which is ketosis. And the other one is where the 100 trillion cells burn glucose. And one of the things that was shocking to me when I was writing body science was to find that science had, there, there, there's only two methods. Science had named one but nothing for the other. And, and what made it more bizarre is that probably 99.5% of the human race is living in this condition where their cells burn glucose for energy, yet that system didn't have a name. So um, as ketones, we call it ketosis, I looked at glucose and I said, okay, so we're gonna call this glucosin. So um, much like hepatic lipid system and so forth, I, I actually had to create a name to describe a system that the medical community had just left unnamed for some very odd reason. Okay, so the glucoses, the cells are burning glucose for energy. And as we hinted at a little bit ago when we were discussing the brain, glucose is a horrible source of energy. It's, it's dirty fuel is, is a good way to phrase that. And one of the things that I find, knowing what I know, just incredibly bizarre is that the entirety of the medical community, of the medical research community, of, of physiologists and so forth, they will tell you that burning glucose is the intended method for human beings to fuel ourselves, <laughs> which is, it's so incredibly bizarre. When you look at the history of mankind, it's very clear that uh, with a few exceptions, such as people living in the Amazon rainforest and things like that, which are which we're talking about a little tiny. Other than that, um, for millions of years, every single human born was living from birth till the day he died in, in ketosis. So to claim that for millions and millions of years, humankind existed in a state of, of ketosis, but somehow burning glucose is the natural way of things is just a bizarre claim. And I think the point I want to make to your audience is I'm going to go out on a limb and say close to 100% of people who consider themselves knowledgeable in these matters say that glucose is the natural intended method of fueling the cells. It's just incredibly Crazy. bizarre. Crazy. And, it, and, it, and it shows that perhaps we should not always trust people who have um, certificates on the wall and diplomas yeah. on the wall um, that perhaps we should look into things ourselves and use our own brain housing in it. So um, glucose is, is interesting in the fact that, uh, especially today when, again, people are eating so many carbs and most of those carbs are coming from processed foods. And so they're very, they're high, high glycemic. And what, I don't know if people are aware of this because of course, since since everybody who's in the establishment says burning glucose is the normal, correct, and healthy th thing for the body to do. I don't know how many people are aware of this, that high blood glucose levels are injurious to the tissues and the organs of the body. Okay. Uh, this is what kills type 1 diabetics, okay, if they didn't have access to insulin, right? Um, they, can, they can never bring that, they can never bring their blood sugar level back down, um, and it eventually destroys their organs. That's what killed type 1 diabetics before we had synthetic insulin. But yet, we drive our glucose up time and time and time and time again. 
multiple times a day. And of course, then insulin has to be produced. And insulin has its own issues, which if we have time, we can get into that as well. But I did make a short list, if you don't mind me reading it, because it, it's relevant to this. These are the conditions uh, and, and illnesses brought on by high blood glucose levels as acknowledged by the mainstream medical community, okay? Heart disease, cognitive decline, bone and joint problems, kidney disease, sexual dysfunction, depression, stroke, nerve damage, vaginal and skin diseases, eye damage, ear infections, mouth injuries, urinal tract infections, respiratory infections, what did we just live? What did we just live through? Yeast infections and stomach and intestinal problems. Those are the medical conditions and diseases that are caused by high glucose levels in the blood, as acknowledged by the mainstream medical community. So yes, high blood glucose is a problem, and Americans spike it up again and again and again and again and again, all day long. So the body has to get rid of that. There's a couple of ways it does that. The first way that it does that is through the pancreas excreting insulin. Um, and what insulin does is it will do the simple version. Uh, it burns out the, the, the glucose. We'll, we'll phrase it that way. But what it really does in a, in a physiological sense is it instructs the liver to begin converting the glucose that passes through the liver in the blood into triglycerides. Now we've heard that name earlier today when we were talking about the colored microns in the lymphatic lipid system and they contain triglycerides. Uh, you very wisely asked me to point out that there is no storage mechanism uh, in the lymphatic li li lipid system concerning triglycerides. The exact opposite is true when the liver converts excess blood sugar, that, that's the key, excess blood sugar into trigly triglycerides. It packages them up in something called VLDL, right? Which is like HDL, LDL. It's, it's part of the lipoprotein family. Uh, packages up this triglycerides in the VLDLs and starts jettisoning them out into the bloodstream. So these VLDLs are circulating in the bloodstream. Now, if your cells are burning glucose for energy, how much need do they have for triglycerides? Now, in ketosis, they love triglycerides, right? Um, but in glucoses, your cells are burning glucose. And we're going to get into why that is in a minute. But because they're burning glucose, well, why do they care about the triglycerides? Which triglycerides, anytime you hear that word, just think equals energy. Triglycerides, energy. Fatty acids, energy. Okay. So these VLDLs are circulating and they, they, they've got to get, they, they must, physiologically, they must get rid of the, the triglycerides and return to the, and the VLDLs, which are no longer VLDLs at that point, they're IDLs and LDLs. They have to return to the liver, empty. But the cells don't want the triglycerides. The only place for the VLDL to offload the triglycerides is into your adipose fatty tissues, the white fat cells of your body. When you look at somebody, you're walking through the grocery store and you look at somebody who's got rolls of fat, those rolls you're seeing, they are comprised of enlarged white fat cells. And that's where the VLDL deposits the triglycerides. So the more that you, the, the more carbohydrates you eat, which creates higher glucose, the more 
the liver needs to keep packaging this up at an ever-increasing rate, putting them out into the blood. There's nowhere to put them because the cells are burning glucose, so it goes into the white fat cells. Um, we talked about Gary Taubes a moment ago, he, and I quote him in the book where he says, if obesity is an increase in storing fat, what is the mechanism that causes our bodies to store fat? Well, you just heard it. That's the mechanism. However, and here's the very interesting thing. And this is another reason I think that people who say that glucose is a glucose is, is natural is that they've lost their minds. There is not enough capacity in the liver to take all of the blood glucose that needs to be lowered out of the blood. There just is. It, it could work triple over time. It can't do the job. There's still going to be elevated blood glucose. And of course, as we know, high blood glucose damages the organs and tissues. It's got to be dealt with. So, audience, how does it do that? The answer is, it shoves the glucose into the cells and burns it, oxidizes it. And then the establishment says, voila, that's the natural way for the body to generate energy. <laughs> when in fact, it's the same thing if you had an incinerator in your backyard and your backyard was filled with types of trash that you could incinerate and it was legal in your area, would you spend days or weeks gathering it all up, putting it in trucks, taking it to the dump, or would you shove it in the incinerator and incinerate it? Well, of course you would. And that's exactly what the body does with the excess blood glucose. I should say there is a, there is a blood glucose baseline. That's appropriate and proper and healthy. So I don't want people to misconstrue that any glucose in the body is bad. That's not true. Glucose is, is arguably, in a physiological sense, not just with humans, one of the most common elements on the planet. And so um, the body does require glucose, but it produces its own, and again, we talked about this, right up to the point it needs and not a speck more. Yep. What, what we here in the 21st century do is we drive that number up and up and up again and again and again and again, well past what I call baseline. Okay, the, the healthy baseline. So the liver can't handle it all. It can't convert all of the necessary, can't convert enough of the glucose to bring it back to baseline or somewhere near baseline. So the only option the body has left to cope with this emergency situation, which is high blood glucose, which is unhealthy for the organs, the only way left for it to deal with it is to shove it in the cells and incinerate, which is exactly what the body does when people are living in glucosis. And then the establishment and, you know, people who hold multiple PhDs will sit here and tell you that's completely normal and healthy. It's, it's insane. Absurd. It's insane. <laughs> yes, it is. I explained all of this to my 14-year-old client this morning. He races motocross. And I said, what would happen if you took your race bike engine and used it all day, every day with high octane fuel and you just zipped it around everywhere? He was like, oh, I would burn through the engine. Like he understands. He's got it. It's so yeah. obvious. It's so much common sense that you describe this system as an emergency backup, which we could use in the very extremely rare times where we would come across some carbohydrate vastly different than the type of carbohydrate we have today, or at least much more seasonal and in much smaller quantities. <laughs> and so we so, are throttling this engine all the time. Okay. So let's talk about inf inflammation for a moment. 
Um, Is there anyone on the planet who doesn't at this point understand that inflammation is a driver of of so many diseases? Um, It is completely, I was going to say it's completely unhealthy for the body. Not true. There are certain healing moments when inflammation is necessary in order to engender certain responses from other enzymes and so forth. But on the whole, inflammation is unhealthy. If the body's functioning without any wounds outside or inside, um, there should be very little, almost no inflammation in the body at all. So get this. When the cells burn glucose, the byproduct of that process is something called reactive oxygen species, otherwise known as ROS. ROS is a major source of inflammation in the body. So this is the part that kills me when they say, oh yeah, you know, burning glucose is totally normal and healthy in the way man was intended to operate. So we know inflation, not inflation. Yeah, tell me more, my mind's been lately. Inflation is, is incredibly unhealthy um, for the body. And it, it makes anything worse and it can cause problems that did not previously exist. Okay? So the best way, according to the experts, the best way for you to be healthy is to live in a system whereby you're creating ROS at all hundred trillion cells of your body all day long are creating, creating uh, they're, they're engaged in a process which results in reactive oxygen species, which is a major driver of inflation, uh, inflation, inflammation. So every single cell of your body as a byproduct of burning glucose is creating inflammation. And then the experts tell you, yeah, that's totally the healthy way for your body to be. So bad. <laughs> it's, so, it's ridiculous when you... <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. And I, I just highly encourage the listener to pick up the, the book. Body Science is so well done. And we're just like scratching the surface here. But I did, I did want to comment on a quote that you have in the book from Otto Warburg. Otto Warburg was a researcher in cancer who is so critically important to the Nazis and to Adolf Hitler that they kept him, a Jew, alive in Germany during World War II. And you said a quote by him that said something like, science advances one funeral at a time. And on that note, what are the implications of all of this, both financially and health-wise? You, you talked about some of the diseases, which, I, again, I think that's also scratching the surface. But those are some pretty serious and major diseases. What, is, what are the implications, and, and again, if financially, health-wise, whatever, for running that, that hepatic lipid system and being in glucosis? We talked about, metab- we mentioned metabolic syndrome a few moments ago. And although different medical experts, metabolic syndrome describes a cluster of unhealthy circumstances within the body. And depending on what medical experts you're talking to, that changes a little bit. I'm going to give you the standard, um, what most medical professionals consider metabolic syndrome factors. Um, Obesity, that's of the uh, adipose tissue we talked about. High blood pressure, high levels of triglycerides in the blood. We talked about that a little bit. Low HDL, the alleged good cholesterol, and high blood glucose. So if you have two of the, I'm sorry, three of the five of those, you're considered to have metabolic syndrome. With that, uh, we it mentions obesity, but obesity, it, it is a character, a creature all unto itself. And as we learned through SARS-CoV-2 over the last 30 some odd months, 
Uh, it is a major indicator of a bad outcome. Uh, we also mentioned a few moments ago that one of the problems with having high blood glucose is respiratory infections. Okay? So start adding some of these things together. Uh, heart disease, di type 2 diabetes. Um, it's all about the carbs. And I know people who haven't read body science, they might guffaw at that. They, they might not be willing to accept that, but it really is. It's all about the carbs. Um, the diseases that, well, first of all, when your body running in ketosis, it's unlikely you're going to have any disease unless it's something like a bacteria or a virus, which your body will fight off much more effectively in ketosis. That's right. Than that. That's right. Um, but let me read you a brief list of medical issues that living in ketosis will terminate, okay? Not make it better, terminate them. Insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, cancer with a codicil. It minimizes the odds significantly. It does not terminate it. Um, the number one reason is cancer cells thrive on glucose. That's right. So the more glucose you have, the more you are energized. And I go through a whole, you probably recall, I go through a whole segment of the book on cancer and ketosis and glucose and so forth. Alzheimer's, again, we briefly talked about the amyloid beta and in there I explain, despite, the only reason there's controversy today, at, when you, if you watch like the media and believe them, the only reason there's a controversy about what creates Alzheimer's is so they can do more, they can fund billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars more in research. And then big pharma can come out with a product that people can take every day for the rest of their lives making big pharma trillions of dollars to fight something that you will never get if you live in ketosis, okay? And body science has a full explanation for why that is. Uh, by the way, I should add that um, it's never too late to start. If somebody's watching this and say they're 50 and they're concerned that, you know, these days Alzheimer's coming on to people in their early 50s. Okay, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It used to be only in like the 70s, but the numbers been ratcheting down and down and down. And down. Um, it's never too late. So if you think, man, I, I lived in glucosis, you know, I've been, you read the explanation of body science and you think, man, I've, I've done a lot of stuff to my brain by doing that. It's never too late to start. Your body, even in older age, will clear these things out if you let it. It's not going to happen in a week or a month, but it will if you give it a chance. Obesity and probably I think the one that, that for whatever reason, seems to be a, a, a real important one to me is heart disease, probably because it's been so grossly mischaracterized what causes heart disease and what rectifies heart disease. You won't get heart, again, absent of genetic abnormality, you will not get heart disease when you live in ketosis, period, full stop, end of statement. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If, you, if, you, if you've been diagnosed with heart disease, um, again, it's not going to happen in an hour, a day, or a week, but if you go into ketosis, you're going to ratchet that back, and eventually your doctor is going to say, especially if you don't tell him you're in ketosis, eventually he's going to say, I don't know what happened. Your heart disease just, it's gone. Okay? Your choice. Yeah. I, can, I can only tell you. I can only write a book. What to do with the information, of course, is up to each individual. Yeah, and I really appreciate that. And on that note, uh, we, we talked in the very beginning of this conversation about some health conditions that you surely must be dealing with. Three and a half years on carnivore, you've been keto before that. How are you managing your scurvy? <laughs> I love it. Okay, do you, do you want me to tell the scurvy story? Absolutely. Okay, so 
science will tell you, if you don't get at least 45 milligrams of vitamin C every single day for, and you, you stop that, you go to like zero or close to zero vitamin C, somewhere between four weeks and 90 days, you will develop the symptoms of scurvy. You probably remember scurvy from, you know, when you were in junior high and they talked about sailors trying to find the new world, right? And they didn't have any vitamin C. They didn't have fruits and things that had vitamin C. So they ended up getting scurvy. Uh, so I don't supplement. The only supplement I take because I work indoors is I take vitamin D3. Other than that, I don't take any supplements whatsoever. Uh, but, so obviously I'm not getting any, and I eat nothing but animal flesh. So I'm not getting any vitamin C. Are there trace amounts of vitamin C? Yes, there's two tenths of 1%, uh, I'm sorry, two tenths of one milligram of vitamin C ascorbic acid in a bit more than two pounds of animal flesh. And that's about what I eat in a day. So I'm getting about two tenths of one milligram of vitamin C a day. But remember, the science says you need 45 milligrams a day to prevent scurvy. Obviously, I get a tiny, tiny fraction of what they consider to be the minimum to avoid scurvy. Um, that's been the case now for more than three years. Um, and the symptoms are supposed to come on no later than 90 days. So I'm, I'm wondering, when will I get scurvy? And, and probably, more importantly, when will the other several million people on the planet that are eating carnivore, when will they get scurvy? Because they don't have it either. And the, the point of that, in, when I share that scurvy story, is it should illustrate to people, hopefully, that how the body addresses nutrients and what it does with those nutrients is considerably different when you live in ketosis versus when you live in glucosis. And we've talked about the diseases and so forth, the things that, that um, high blood sugar will bring on and, and high insulin in response to blood sugar has its own debilitating aspects and so forth. In other words, this is an entirely unhealthy, it, it, it's, it's a downward spiral. It's like looking in the toilet and seeing the water going down. Okay? That's what living in glucosis really is. And of course, we know, especially for, for the last 30 months with SARS-CoV-2, it was always the elderly that were at the greatest risk, right? And the reason they're at the greatest risk is they have been burning glucose. Their cells have been creating ROS. They, their body has been having to incinerate glucose, which is an ugly, dirty process. Their bodies have been storing triglycerides in the white fat tissue. They have not been getting a lick of excess. Well, oftentimes people who their bodies are debilitated from decades and decades of living in glucosis. They can't even imagine something like going and exercising because they feel so crappy, right? right? So, and of course, you know this, Casey. I don't know how much your audience knows about this, but the lymph system, it doesn't have a pump. The vascular system, obviously, the heart is what makes the blood go around. Um, the lymph system doesn't have that. And the lymph system is critical, not just a part of it, critical to the body's proper immune function. And because the lymph system, which has lymph fluid in it, and that fluid has got to move around and go through the lymph sites and so forth, and to, to deposit certain kinds of, of cells, and it's got to remove um, toxins and debris that have been cleared out of the body by the immune system, the, the lymph fluid has to move. The only way, the way that the human body is designed to get that lymph fluid to move is the contraction of muscle of skeletal muscle. 
So when you're doing squats, doing bench press, doing curls, doing triceps, whatever you're doing, you're actually moving your lymph fluid around. So we go back to the elderly. They're not exercising. They're not moving their lymph fluid. That means their immune system is highly compromised. They've been burning ugly glucose for decades. Their body is wore the fuck out from that whole process. And then we say, well, it's just because they're old. No, it's because they have run their bodies into the ground by not living right. So somebody who's 90, Matter of fact, I got a friend of mine. She's 93. She just moved from the small town that I live in uh, up to Vegas here about eight, nine months ago. 93 years old, goes into the, she keeps herself in good shape. She eats the right things. She goes into the gym and does like two or three aerobics classes a day and she lifts weights. And she, 93, and she breathes through SARS CoV 2. Never had a problem, never once. Wow. Okay. Wow. So it's not just, it's not old age. It's decrepit, it's decrepit bodies, which come from decades of bodily abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so very much for making that point. I absolutely love that, which brings me perfect segue to the next issue I see in this world all the time. And I saw it with you as well. When I'm looking at podcast covers that you are doing currently versus the podcast cover you used seven or eight years ago, I can look and see a difference in age and I can guess which one is the older one. The only problem is I would be wrong. There is some type of syndrome. I'm going to call it the Benjamin Button syndrome that happens in this world that you certainly are experiencing symptoms of that. Dude, you're reverse aging. People are reverse aging. They look younger and younger and younger for every day, every week, every year that goes by. It's incredible. Well, I did decide a couple of years ago that I was tired of getting older on my birthday each year. So I decided I'm going to start getting younger. Smart, smart. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't need that establishment nonsense. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I've been in ketosis for more than four and a half years. And well, I would say the lion's share of, of the big, broad, macro noticeable things occurred within the first year Um, because I'm in tune with my body and I listen to my body. I believe that's very important for health. Uh, I'm still aware of changes that are manifesting themselves now, which is not surprising concerning I was 58 when I shifted into ketosis. So I'd spent 58 years punishing my body in glucoses Uh, unknowingly, but nevertheless, it it remains the same outcome, whether I did it intentionally or otherwise. Um, So I don't think it's surprising that after 58 years here, I am a little bit more than four and a half years into it, and I'm still noticing changes. And I will say, there were noticeable changes when I shifted from the keto way of eating and the keto way of staying in ketosis, the 80-15-5 paradigm. When I shifted into eating carnivore style, a, the, the changes were not as dramatic as going from glucosis to ketosis, but when I went from keto to carnivore, there was there were a whole slew of additional, not as big, not as dramatic, but of additional changes that manifested themselves over about the first six months of that. And that was very exciting to see as well. 
Yeah, I see that across the board, and I absolutely love that. The different anecdotes and case studies and all these people that are really healing themselves by that switch. I think I think getting out of glucosis is so important, but switching over to carnivore, that's where you see all the really miraculous-sounding benefits. And I'm just wondering, you know, now that body science has been out for a while and people have read it, people have wrote to you, as you said, how, how are you feeling about the impact of the work you've created? Oh, I'm... I... I, I guess that the best way I could describe it is I feel so grateful uh, that I have been the outlet okay, that can change people's lives in a positive sense. Um, you know, the information was always out there, just like income tax shattering this. The, the, the information has always been there. Um, but the will and perhaps the acumen to hand it to people in a way that they can digest and understand and make use of it. Um, I am, the way I feel about it is I feel extremely grateful. That's amazing. Because, you know, this may sound a little, I don't know. Uh, I think the greatest thing we can do in our lifetime is to help others. Uh, I think it's just natural to take care of ourselves, right? I mean, from the time that humankind existed, we get up in the morning and we do things for ourselves. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Self-interest is great. That's different than selfishness, of course. Self-interest is, is absolutely essential and phenomenal and wonderful. But then there's something more in my book. And that's something more that I think everybody should be aspiring to do if they, if they have the ability in some way to do it is to help others. So in that sense, because I believe that is the greater purpose in life is to help others. I feel very grateful that I've been in a position to do that. That's amazing. Yeah, that is absolutely amazing. That is very much a carnivore answer. It's, it's that kind of <laughs> mental clarity. And it's like, it, for me, it was, it was a, a huge increase in gratitude. And I would say like presence and spirituality in my life increased when I went carnivore. And I, I felt good on keto, but going carnivore was like, it, it, there's something different about it. And you do just, you feel so happy and peaceful sharing a message and helping others. I love Love, love that answer. This has been such an amazing conversation. I'm so glad we took the time to do this and, and deep dive into this again. Day Champion, where would you like people to go to find you and connect with you in your work and find your book, Body Science? Okay. Um, my website is drreality.news. And that is D-R reality, all one word, drreality.news. Um, you can read a synopsis of my history and about me there on the on the front page. And then there's a store and there's a blog if you want to take a look at some interesting articles I've written. Um, and uh, I've written a number of publications and you'll find them there within the store. Um, there's also a link there if you wish to email me about something, you can do that. Um, so, yeah. And, of course, I'm all over Facebook. So I actually have a Facebook page, which is Busy Keto Life with Dr. Dave Champion. That's not a medical doctor. That's a doctorate degree. Awesome. I always have to say that. Whenever I say Dr. Dave Champion, especially after the last 30 months, no, I'm not. (laughs) That's perfect. No, we will link to all of that in the show notes. Like I said, Dave Champion, I'm so grateful for you and for the time you took to discover this and to really deep dive. Those three weeks that you were deep diving into the ketogenic diet, so pivotal and so life-changing, not only for you and Jen, but for all the people that got to read your book, including myself. So thank you so very much for everything that you do and the impact that you make. And, and thank you for, again for taking time to come on our show today. We really appreciate you. 
And thank you for allowing all of this information to get out to your audience. That's phenomenal. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. And this has been another Thanks, episode of Balanced Body Radio. And there you have it. You know, I've been interviewed, oh, I couldn't even begin to tell you how many times over the last 15 or 20 years. And I really appreciate Casey's style of being an interviewer. And I hope that the questions that he asked and the answers that they elicited from me was highly informative for you. And I want to encourage you to do a couple of things. Number one, go to Boundless Body Radio and subscribe to his podcast. Secondly, go to drreality.news, drreality.news. Grab yourself a copy of Body Science and or income tax shattering the mist, you have my word that they will be two of the most fascinating books you will have ever read in your entire life, and they will change your life if you let them. Thanks for being here. Take care.